This is the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess, and we're reflecting our way into episode number 59. Welcome to the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast, the tips, tools, and straight talk you want for pregnancy, childbirth, and bringing up baby. And now your host, Kristen Burgess. Hi, this is Kristen from naturalbirthandbabycare.com. Today we're going to talk about my pregnancy mistakes and what I did right. This is just me reflecting on choices that I made or things that I did throughout my pregnancies that I feel I either didn't do right or I did do right. And I thought that would be helpful for you because you're getting a little bit of seasoned advice on the topic. When I think back on my pregnancies and my baby's births, I really feel that for the most part, I did a good job. But there's always those things because we're mamas and we say, oh, if only I had done or if I hadn't done this or that or whatever, then things would have been different. So that's natural. I'm not sharing this because I want you to feel guilty for things that you did or didn't do, but because I want you to benefit from the wisdom that I've gained over quite a few pregnancies. And I don't do this because I think that you need to do this in regards to your pregnancy and birth, though I imagine that you probably will somewhat because, like I said, it's totally natural for us as mamas to do that kind of thing. But I'm doing this more for your benefit and not because I think that it's anything that you need to do or that you need to feel guilty or wrong for making different choices than me. It's just that I want to share with you some choices that I made and things that I did or things that I didn't do that I would maybe adjust a little bit. The first thing that I think that I would change especially in my early pregnancies, but even even all of my pregnancies, is taking things at face value. I took a lot of things at face value, and at this point, I think I shouldn't have. Now, I want to balance that by saying I don't think that you can intensively research everything in pregnancy. And one of the reasons that you choose a trusted advisor in pregnancy, whether that be a, a care provider or a midwife or a childbirth educator or anything, is because you trust that she or he has done their homework and and you want to be able to trust in them and not maybe have to rely on doing all of your research for things. Uh, But at the same time, I do wish that I had learned earlier to to question everything. There's um, a ministry that I like to listen to called 119 Ministries, and their their little slogan is question everything. So they say even their teachings, you know, you should go back to the Word of God and question those. And I think that that's a good policy to have when it comes to birth and baby stuff. I mean, you're, you're going to be consulting birth and baby sources, of course, but, but you should question everything, at least to a certain level. Why? do you do things that way? Or why should I do that? How will that benefit myself and my baby? Asking those questions is intelligent. And of course, like I said, it can get overwhelming. But at least on some level, it's good to think about the choices that you make. I mean, the diet that I advise, that your midwife advises, or the advice that your doctor gives you. And that's really, I think that When I've read information in baby books, even with my first baby, 
when I read information in different baby books and and different parenting styles and even about different birth choices, I I automatically asked why or I automatically considered and I looked at alternatives. For instance, when I considered do I want a hospital birth or a home birth, I really researched the why behind that. So I knew when I I chose a home birth, even for my very first baby, and when I made that choice, I knew why I made that decision. And I chose consciously that I wanted a midwife to take care of me. And I made that decision consciously. And like I said, with the baby care decisions, I read books with all kinds of differing perspectives. Though I will admit that I was a little one-sided because I did tend to take what the book said about quote-unquote natural parenting or attachment parenting I took those more at face value and read what they said about you know the non-attachment parenting methods and their rationale against those and I did I didn't really do a lot of research into rationale for those things so my research wasn't completely biased but I do feel like I did a lot of research what I think that I took more at face value during my pregnancies and really all through my pregnancies, was a protocol that my midwife might have. So I was good about questioning the protocols at the OB's office because I've seen OB's here and there throughout my pregnancies. And my first three, because my state um, required that people seeing a midwife be seen by an OB two times during their pregnancy. The first, I guess, to kind of confirm that they were pregnant in the eyes of the state, which is ridiculous. And the second to be approved for a home birth by the OB, which I also think is ridiculous. But the OBs that I saw were pretty laid back about it all. So but you know, I questioned their protocols. I questioned why would they do this or that or the other. But my midwives, I, I haven't questioned as much. And something that I've really come to learn more recently is I've gone into a lot greater depth with my own study in pregnancy and childbirth is asking why. Why do we do this? From, you know, why do we advise this particular diet to why do we put a hat on a baby right after birth? And I, I like the hat example. You've heard me talk about the hat in some earlier podcast episodes. And if you're a student, you've heard me talk about it. But, uh, but it, was, it was midwife Carla Hartley who really, it, she kind of brought this home for me. And she used the hat because it's something that we would never think would have a big impact. Who would ever think that a newborn hat would have a big impact? We automatically assume that hats help us stay warm and therefore it's good on a baby because that's what they do in hospitals and that's what most home birth midwives do. Uh, but but the re- and what Carla challenged us with in the class that I took with her was that well, think about it, is first of all the assumption that a hat helps keep you warmer true and that's actually not a true assumption. A hat does help keep your head warmer, but it doesn't keep you warm in a disproportionate sense. For instance, we we seem to think that by putting a hat on a head, we keep the entire body warmer. But the hat on the head, keeping the head warm doesn't have any more power than, say, putting a glove on a hand and keeping the hand warm. It warms in proportion to the surface area that's covered, if that makes sense. So a hat is not some magical thing 
if you have a newborn baby who's got nothing on and is sitting uh, on a table with a hat on, that hat isn't going to keep that baby warm because the entire rest of the baby's body is exposed. Now, of course, if you've got a baby bundled up and you put a hat on, there's going to be a little bit more warmth in that baby. Uh, but because there's more of the baby's surface area is covered. And that's why it's not because a hat is something magic. So we also know that putting a baby on a mama's chest, the mom's body temperature automatically adjusts to warm baby up. And if you cover both mom and baby with a blanket, then they can snuggle together skin to skin and, and the baby stays warm. Unless the baby has, uh, you know, a congenital defect or something. But otherwise, the mom's body is primed to keep the baby warm and to regulate the baby's heartbeat and respirations and even blood glucose levels. It's actually pretty amazing. And so that was learning the, the fact that a hat is not a magic thing. And studies have actually shown that, that a hat really doesn't do all that much for maintaining an infant's body temperature, period. And there have been some studies done on it. And they found the hat to be relatively useless, but they also stated it was probably relatively harmless, so there wasn't a huge call for a policy change. But other studies have shown that the smell of a baby's head and the action that a mother takes when she nuzzles her nose and chin down into her newborn baby's head, there's a lot of powerful olfactory stimulation and also probably powerful pheromone transfer going on there. And all of that's really important. And when you put that little kind of clinical smelling hat on a baby's head, how does that change that? Uh, how does it change it from an olfactory sense, from a sense of the pheromones and the, uh, the limbic system? How does it even change? I mean, is a mother's body or her lips expecting that little wrinkly head to brush up against them when she kisses it? Is her nose expecting to feel that wrinkly hair? Is there something in her maternal body that's primed for that? Is the baby expecting that uh, pressure? It's just it's all kinds of things we don't know and you would never think about that and so I give that as an example for something that I took for granted that oh well we put we put hats on newborn babies heads and that's something I never would have thought to question and it can get overwhelming to think question everything oh my goodness I need to think about everything even the hat that they're putting on my baby's head and I don't want to overwhelm you I just use that as an example for that we want to think about things, that we don't really want to take things, everything at face value. And we, I really think that the best tactic to take in this as mothers and the least overwhelming way to approach this is to look at, at normal, natural, physiological birth as the base and perhaps as the gold standard. And you look at the way that childbirth and pregnancy happen for a healthy mom who's eating well, who's well supported, and then who is able to birth in her element uh, with a very hands-off midwife or perhaps unassisted, but many of us want midwives. So think if you have a very hands-off midwife who's content to knit or meditate or do whatever she does during the birth, but she's not really hands-on, and then she's also content just to watch and observe how the newborn and the mom are doing after birth. She would only jump in if she saw a problem, and we'll assume, as like most moms and babies will experience, that there's no problem in this birth. 
And how would birth look in that situation? And there there are resources that help you know that. I did a podcast a few months back called What is Physiological Birth? And I'll link to that in the show notes. And that goes through all of that. And another really good resource, which I'll also link to in the show notes, is Sarah Buckley's book. She's a doctor from Australia, and she's written a lovely book called Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. And she talks a lot about what does an undisturbed physiological birth look like and it's a very accessible easy to read book so I recommend that you read that and just with that understanding of what is the baseline of a normal hands-off birth where mama is pretty much allowed to birth just like her mama cat might be allowed to birth so if you think about how your pet cat or your pet dog might be allowed to birth when they go to have their litter They would be undisturbed and in the dark and things would be quiet and what would they naturally do to help get their babies going. And those things, I mean, we we take those for granted for a dog and a cat. So ask yourself, what would a human birth look like in that situation? And then, then you have a baseline or gold standard, so to speak, and you can use that to measure other things. So why... If this is the gold standard for birth, and it is because it's what creates the most safety, and I've gotten, I've got lots of articles that have come out and are coming out recently on the website, so many that you'll be able to reference, um, and I'll link to some of those in the show notes, but that just talk about why physiological birth is safest for most mothers and most babies. Of course, I acknowledge that there are always exceptions and that I'm grateful for life-saving medical technology when it's needed but most of the time it's not needed and can possibly be harmful if used when not needed. So when we look at that gold standard for most moms and most babies, knowing aware, being aware and conscious of the fact that there will be some who need more than that, who need help, but most don't, then why are there all these changes? Why might my midwife choose to put a hat on the baby? Why, why might my midwife decide to do vaginal exams when, when we can all tell that things are going on, that the baby is coming, when she can observe signs in me, when I can feel changes in my body when I'm working with things? Why, why would those be necessary? Uh, is it because her license says she has to do it? Is it because the hospital where she's at and where I'm at say that she has to do it? You know, ask why. Uh, why would I need continuous fetal monitoring? Is there evidence that supports that when that's not what most mothers and babies would have? And why might I choose to have intermittent fetal monitoring, which is the standard for most home births and many hospitals are, are open to it too if they have the personnel to be able to do it every 15 minutes or so. But just explore those issues and go from the baseline of a natural undisturbed birth and ask why would I change? And that's something that I wish that I had done, uh, even for my first pregnancy. I wish that I had understood more about what is normal physiological birth. Uh, Because like I said, I was pretty skeptical already about a lot of the things that are done during pregnancy, because a lot of those were associated with an OB's office. And I do think that each of my babies was a beautiful, natural birth. But if I had understood more about physiological birth and more about working with my baby, there are parts of the births that I think may have gone smoother. They may not have gone smoother. But hindsight is always 2020 of course but I'm just telling you that I think that's a good basis to be coming from that understanding of birth and then questioning everything in that light so that's probably the biggest thing that I would change 
The second thing that I would change is believing that diet was all about protein. And this is something that I believed pretty much through all my pregnancies and that I that I really emphasized and that I really taught that it's protein, protein, protein because you hear about the Brewer Diet recommends high levels of protein. And again, as I've delved in and studied much more about the importance of pregnancy diet, I've come to understand that it's a lot more than that. And I talked about this on a recent podcast, the Q&A about pregnancy diet. And I also wrote a, an article recently about the myths of pregnancy diet. And I, I can link to all of these things in the show notes so that you'll be able to check them out. But the what I think is the best way to describe pregnancy diet now is what Nurse Joy Jones uses to describe it. And she's a, a fan of the Brewer Diet, as am I. If you've listened to any podcast, you know that I believe in nutrition and in the Brewer Diet. But she uses the analogy of a three-legged stool. Instead of saying it's just one leg, which is protein, and if you get enough protein, you're okay, Joy teaches that no, that's not the case, and that's not what Dr. Brewer taught either. It's a three-legged stool, and one of the legs is protein, but if you have a stool that has three legs and you chop the other two off, it's going to fall over. You have to have all three legs. (laughs) If you have two, it's going to fall over. So one of those is protein which you know of. The other is salting to taste. And the final one is getting enough calories. And salting to taste is vital to your blood supply expansion, as is protein. And the calories gives your body the energy that it needs to function. And it allows the protein that you're eating to be used for what it's supposed to be used for, which is maintaining your body, building your baby's body, building your placenta, Uh, expanding your blood supply, building your baby's blood supply from scratch. Uh, All those things need lots of protein. But if you don't have calories, then protein will be used instead for energy. And there's actually a biological process, which I talk about in the podcast episode and in the article, that, that happens and protein is broken down and converted into sugar, glucose, in the bloodstream to be used for energy. And if that's happening, it can't be used for all those other things that I just mentioned. So it's a really, it's a vital thing to understand that you need to get more than just protein. And I tended to eat a well, a well-rounded pregnancy diet overall because I was following the Brewer Diet checklists, which knew all these things that were kind of not at the forefront of my mind. Uh, but, you know, I wish that I had known, especially to teach other moms more clearly the importance of the calorie level and the salting to taste along with the, along with the other foods. Something I wish that I had done differently during my first few births and the preparation for my births, and I hinted at this a minute ago, was I wish that I had not chosen to focus on pain relief. I really, really wish that I had realized that having a baby is not about escaping the pain of labor. And one of the things we do when we talk about natural birth is we talk about how we're not martyrs. We're not doing this to be a martyr. And I feel that in a sense, when we end up really focusing on pain relief, we actually do focus on being a martyr, which is not what we want to focus on. And that pain relief is, 
that's the focus of medicated childbirth because when you are focused on getting your epidural, you are focused on relieving the pain of childbirth or removing the pain of childbirth. And that's the point. The point is to remove the pain. And then the baby comes as this nice little bonus at the end. And when you focus on natural pain relief techniques, when you prepare for birth, that's the focus. You kind of forget that there's a baby coming at the end or the baby is just this thing that you managed to get to while you coped with the pain without medication. And that sort of feels like the definition of a martyr, which is not what we want. I get asked, well, what do I focus on instead of pain relief? And it's just that I don't want to say that you shouldn't have any coping techniques. That's not what I'm saying at all. But What you want to focus on is the fact that you're working with your baby. And as you discover how you work with your baby during your birthing time, inherently many of those things are going to reduce pain. Many of those things are going to help you focus on and help you um, get more, focus on taking care of yourself, getting more comfortable. It's just, it's natural because when you're working with your baby, things tend to be moving smoothly. There may still be some intense points in all of my birthings. For the most part, there has been a point of intensity. Uh, There has been a point where I really needed the outside assurance of a birth partner or my midwife. It can certainly get intense. And I'm not saying if you focus on your baby, that won't happen. But in the births where I really focused on the fact that I wanted to work with my baby, those births went more smoothly and more quickly for me. And when I reflect on those births, I, I don't remember pain being a part of them. I may remember some intense periods, but the focus and the, the memories are just on how I worked with my baby. And I talk about this in my mama baby birthing classes uh, and some of the resources that I recommend in my mama baby birthing classes. And, and I think it's something that really hasn't been pointed out in the natural childbirth world a lot. Though I do think that in Ina Mae Gaskin's books, which are Spiritual Midwifery and Ina Mae's Guide to Childbirth, I do think she gave a nod to this when she talked about opening and when women in, in their birth stories talked about how they surrendered to opening or how they wanted to focus on getting huge or getting open. That's a nod to working with baby and it's an acknowledgement of the fact that it's important to transcend this focus on pain relief and to move past that and to move to where your focus is on on something greater, opening your body for your baby or working with your baby. So women have this knowledge, they have this wisdom and they have it certainly not something that I invented or that any modern new method just came up with in the last few years. But it's something that um, that perhaps expounding upon really hasn't been done. So it's something that I definitely think is important to state and to state clearly. Focus on working with your baby. Focus on your body being open. And what can you do during birthing to facilitate that? And much of that is preparation during pregnancy. That's what I think the strength of a childbirth class is. Because when you're in your birthing time, you want it to be there in you, like in the very core of your being so that it's instinctive. And that's something that I also talk about in my classes because a lot of moms are worried, oh, will I I remember this? Will I be able to do this? And when you have that awareness during pregnancy and when you've developed that awareness throughout your pregnancy, 
it comes to you during your birthing time. You can still be in that limbic labor land brain. And these things just be, they've become part of you. And I think that's important. So that's something I would go back and change, especially, especially in my first three births. By my fourth birth, I had gotten some resources that helped talk about this and began to understand this. And, and it just came in my fourth, fifth, and sixth baby's births. Through, yeah, throughout each one, it was just more pronounced. And Corwin's birth was just, I guess, a beautiful surrender. But it was, a, it was an amazing experience because I just really, really let that happen. Let my body be used to work with him. And it was just a lovely, beautiful birthing. So that's something I would change. Something I would change in every single one of my pregnancies was was I forgot how important stress relief was and how important taking care of mama was from a stress standpoint. As I already mentioned, I did a good job eating, but from a stress relief standpoint, I just I didn't take enough time to work with the stress and combat that with habits that maybe I couldn't remove the stress. For instance, in my first three pregnancies, I lived below the poverty line, was really struggling financially, had a lot of issues going on with relationships at that time in my life, uh, a lot of fear and uncertainty. And so I, I couldn't remove all of those stressors completely. And I, that's just not the place I was at then. But I could have been a lot more conscious about taking time to relieve the stress and taking time to care for myself and taking time to know that there were things that I could do to help myself calm down and help my baby learn healthy stress responses. And then in my last three pregnancies, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the same stressors. The financial stress, for instance, really wasn't there. But there was still a lot of stress, especially the stress of having a a growing family and having children who weren't little children anymore and who were thinking for themselves and therefore not always doing exactly what you wanted, which can be really stressful. And, And again, I just I didn't take the time to consciously build stress habits. And that's something I definitely feel that I could have done better and been more conscious about. And have tried to be more conscious about on some level, but it's not easy. So that's something I don't have a lot of answers for. I mean, I can give good advice and I could do an entire podcast on that. And I've talked to my students about this, but it's it's something that's challenging. Okay, some things that I think I did right, because I covered some things I think I did wrong and what I would change, but some things I did right, this I already mentioned, I read and read and read, especially baby books, especially books on the whys of natural birth. And though I've read so many more books than since my first pregnancy, and I've learned so much more, I mean, there's there's no way I could have learned everything in my first pregnancy. But I've just I, I've always been a reader, and I've always wanted to read and understand, and I've just really that's one thing I think I did right because that did help me to evaluate so many things and to understand so many things, and to make conscious choices, and it also helped me to reflect. As I got further along in my parenting journey and more mature and a little bit less, you know, pie in the sky, thinking that everything was going to go perfectly for me with parenting and and anything. Um, But it helped me to, to be able to evaluate from a strong baseline of what I knew my ideal was and then perhaps where I knew I would need to compromise. Reading helped me to 
help me to have that goal and that desire. And that's still vital to me in all aspects of my life with parenting, with my business, with everything, with my relationships. It's good to have that knowledge, to have that expanded consciousness so that you know what you're shooting for and what you desire. And so that I know what to pray for when I pray in the morning for wisdom that I may not have. But yeah, reading was a really good thing. Another good thing, even though I made some mistakes with my perception of it initially, was realizing that diet mattered. My midwife told me how important diet was the very first time I interviewed her, which was a phone interview. And she continued to hammer that in. My first midwife with my first three babies was affectionately called in our state the the nutrition Nazi. And so she really was very, very big on pregnancy nutrition. And I listened to her and I'm forever grateful that I did because I believe that is one of the reasons why I've had healthy babies and good births. I also took childbirth classes with my first baby. I took private childbirth classes with my midwife and I've taken classes, in-person classes and group classes and home study classes in various forms throughout many of my pregnancies. And even in Corwin's pregnancy, I didn't take any new classes, but I re-reviewed material from two classes and I taught my own classes every week during Corwin's pregnancy too. But for me, myself, I reviewed my materials and those classes are what really taught me practical ways. I said it's important to have practical ways to work with birthing and especially the classes that I started doing with Galen's birth and then through Galen honor and Corwin helped me understand how to work with my baby and how important that was. It's just so vital. And I think that that's something that you get from childbirth classes, good childbirth classes, that you don't get from, from just reading in books. Though Sarah Buckley's book does a great job helping you have a foundation. I already recommended her book. But birthing classes just have, they're, they give so many benefits. And you can you can go back and listen to the the podcast that I just did a few weeks ago, Why Birthing Classes Are Worth It, and that really details it, so I won't go over it again now, but that was definitely a choice that I made right, and I'm very glad for all of the hours that I've spent, not only teaching classes, but all the class times that I've taken, taken the time for. I'm very grateful that I chose the right care provider. I mentioned this with the very first thing I talked about. I was really choosy. Uh, I knew that I wanted a midwife. I was actually in New Mexico when I got pregnant with my first baby, but knew that I would be moving to South Carolina uh, within the next few months. So I, I sent out email questionnaires to interview interview midwives in South Carolina. And there was one that really resonated with me when she responded back. And so I got on the phone with her and interviewed her and decided she was a good fit. But I had, I had already, I had already done my homework because I love birth and babies and have since I was a young girl. So when I got pregnant, I knew that I would probably want a home birth and a midwife. So I'd already chosen a midwife and already done my homework on why a midwife and not an OB. And then I did my homework to make sure that I had a midwife that that fit me. And it's interesting for me to think back on how my relationship with her evolved from my first pregnancy when I was very young and she was kind of very much a mother figure to me and helping direct me 
and then less so throughout the next two babies that I had with her as I, as I came into my own power and got really confident in myself. And then my midwife that I had for my three babies here because we moved to another state uh, has been much uh, kind of a different relationship. She's more of a confidant and an advisor and just an observer there to watch me because I really grew through my baby's births and how I give birth. But picking the right provider for those births, picking the two midwives that I picked has has been very important to me and I'm I'm grateful to myself even in my young and perhaps stubborn and naive state that I was in when I had my first baby that there was that wisdom and perhaps I'm grateful to the Lord for guiding me even when I was stubborn uh, but just guiding me and helping me pick the right care provider so I really encourage you to consider strongly what you want in birth and then find a care provider who's gonna be your partner in that that's so very important I also advocated for myself really well, and I have done so throughout all of my pregnancies. I said that I was pretty stubborn with my first pregnancy, and I was super stubborn. I was young. I was still definitely on the tail end of feeling that teenage rebellion, I guess. Um, and so the, there, was, there was a lot of, I wasn't going to let myself be pushed around because I knew what I wanted. And I knew that my baby's safety was important and I picked a very wise midwife. And if anything had happened, then, you know, she would have recommended transport and I would have listened to her. And she did give recommendations and things throughout my baby's births, which... Uh, which were valuable to me and helped me even maybe when I was going to be stubborn. But, but for the most part, I knew what I wanted and I was determined to get it. And I stood up for myself even when that was terrifying. And especially once my first baby was born, Cassidy was born, I stood up for what I knew what was right for her and for me, even though that was terrifying to stand up against the pediatrician or family members or whatever. And there's been some things that I look back on that I've relaxed on and things like that or choices that I've made differently with other babies because I've grown as a mother. But I've always been really willing to stand up and fight for myself and my kids and advocate for myself and my kids. And that's really important. I encourage you as a mama to cultivate that mama bear spirit that lives within you and and be willing to stand up and advocate for yourself and your baby. And, and the final point that I wanted to talk about was doing what it took for my baby. And what I just talked about with the advocacy is part of that. And part of that is also... I knew that it was going to take sacrifice on my part. I knew it was going to take work on my part. Like eating the amount of food you need to eat every day to grow a healthy baby is not necessarily super easy. It can be tough. Uh, it requires an element of sacrifice. Standing up for yourself or your baby against care providers can be tough. Seeking out the right care provider. For me, one of the major sacrifices has been... We've paid for all of our baby's births out of pocket with no help from insurance or anything like that because we've always chosen home birth midwives that weren't reimbursed by insurance. And so paying for all those births out of pocket has required sacrifice. It required a different standard of living than perhaps having that big chunk of change in those birth years would have afforded us. So it's, I mean, it's not easy 
It's not easy to stick by your guns and to make the right choices, and it may require some personal sacrifice on your part. It requires balance, too, because as a mom, you have to take care of yourself. So I'm not telling you to run yourself into the ground or run yourself ragged for your kids. Sometimes the best thing for your kids is to say, I'm going to take a little bit of mama time, whether that's for the shower or whether that's to go to the library alone for a few hours while your husband watches them on a Saturday morning. Whatever, sometimes you need to take care of yourself. But remember that parenting is a major sacrifice. And I read an article recently, I don't remember exactly where I read it, but this article resonated with me because, uh, of course, I believe in the Lord Jesus. And they talked about how he, you know, he sacrificed his life for all of us. And, and that when you were parenting, your love was sacrificial in that way too. And that sometimes you would sacrifice yourself for your children because you love them just as he sacrificed himself for us because he loved us. And like I said, that analogy resonates for me because that's where my spiritual beliefs lie. And it's just a beautiful picture of a mother's love. Uh, and, and I like the picture too because we... <laughs> Because if you've studied the life of Jesus, you know that he, you know, sometimes he did stand up and he took a stand for himself and for what was right. And he fussed at his disciples and stuff when he needed their support and they didn't get it or give it. So he ultimately sacrificed himself greatly, but he also, uh, he was a good advocate. Um, and I think it's a good example for a mother to follow, to know that you can advocate for yourself but for the most part, you, you do what it takes for your kids, and it may not always be comfortable or convenient for you. And pregnancy and birth and parenting, they're all like that. It's, it's a big, long sacrifice. And if you look at it as a sacrifice you get to make rather than you have to make, and certainly ladies have bad days where I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? But on the whole, you will grow and change so much and your children give you such a gift that you never would have had without the sacrifices that you make for them. And, uh, and you find the woman, the mama bear, the confident, strong woman within you that you never would have known was there if you hadn't gone through this experience. So do what it takes for your little ones. With that, we're over the 30-minute mark as per usual. So I will go ahead and let you ladies go. Remember, if you want updates, I mentioned that I've put out a lot of articles lately on these topics. If you want updates about when those newest articles come out, because I try and get one out about once a week. If you want updates about the latest podcasts, if you want updates about the latest galleries, so you can look at pictures of beautiful births and adorable babies, those all come when you sign up for my weekly newsletter. And you'll also get tips on preparing for your baby's birth. You can head over to Trust Birth. 101. That's www.trustbirth101101.com and sign up for the newsletter there. With that, I will end this podcast. Remember to leave a rating in iTunes or Stitcher uh, and let other people know that it's a great podcast. I really appreciate your feedback and I will talk to you next week. Be blessed. Thanks for listening to the Birth, Baby and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess. For great resources and tons more info, visit www.birthbabylife.com. Visit www.birthbabylife.com.